Hello and welcome to another edition of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Noreen. Today we're privileged to have Peg O'Connor, Professor of Philosophy specialising in feminist, social, political philosophy and addiction studies, and author of a new book, Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. So Peg is a Professor of Philosophy at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota, and her training is in moral philosophy, feminist philosophy, addiction studies, and the work of Ludwig Wittgenstein. She has written many books, but the book that we're going to be focusing on today is Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering, where Peg introduces the audience uh, to the concept of a higher power, which is usually synonymous with AA and has some religious connotations, but Peg provides some really interesting review into the work of William James and her take on higher power. So, Peg, welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really look forward to this. And I thought to get our audience uh, knowing a bit more about you, could you tell us a bit more about your story and your interaction with AA? So, my name is Peg, and I am an alcoholic. I've been in recovery for 35 years now. And as a very young person in college, I went to my first AA meeting, and I went in and I pretty much ran out uh, quite quickly because the language of God was really difficult for me to square myself with. Having been raised Catholic, having certain understandings about God, I thought if if my making changes in life came down to believing in a God like that, it wasn't going to happen for me. And through a long series of hits and misses, I ended up sobering up quite by accident. I had a terrible car accident right after I graduated from college when I was not yet 22. And I remember being in the hospital in a lot of pain. I had a lot of broken bones. And I remember a nurse offering me what seemed to be like a sampler platter of um, pain relievers. And one half of me really wanted to take them and the other had half thought, don't you dare do it. And I thought, you know what, I need to really change my relationship with alcohol and drugs. So at that time, when I was still in the hospital, I decided to run an experiment. How long could I stay sober? And I had stayed sober for periods of times. Um, I was a tennis and squash player in college, so I would never drink during the season. But then as soon as the season ended, I'd be off and running. So I had stopped many times and I had started that many times plus one. And so I decided really to treat it as an experiment to see how long I could go. And I'm still going. And I still regard it as an experiment in the fact that I need to be nimble and attentive to what it is that I'm doing. And I never went back to AA until I had been sober for almost 20 years. And I went back because I realized I needed to be doing some things differently in my recovery. What had been working for me wasn't working as well as it had been. And I woke up one morning and I had the following thought. I am a mouse running around the trim board of my own life or running around the baseboard of my own life. I didn't recognize my life. I didn't recognize myself. And yet everything was going well. I had a good career. I had a good partner. I had a fabulous dog. And I woke up feeling so kind of alienated from myself and isolated that I thought, oh, no, this isn't right. This is what leads to a relapse. So I started to go to AA, but I still just dip my toes in and out. I still struggle with the language. So this this book that you were kind enough to reference is written for people like me who couldn't square themselves with a very Christian providential 
notion of God, I wanted to reclaim that term and return it to its original, much broader, much more inclusive sense than a Christian-centric God. That's great, Peg. And I just wanted to dig a bit deeper into this concept of the higher power, which is really at the heart of, of AA. And you mention in your book about how the underpinning of this is the philosophical work of, of William James. Could you expand a bit about this intellectual titan, William James, and the impact he's had not only on the field of psychology, but on other thinkers and also the AA program in particular? So William James was an American philosopher, physician, and psychologist. He lived between 1842 and 1910, and his younger brother is Henry James, the novelist that many people may have heard of. And William James's family was wealthy and brilliant and utterly tormented. And William James's father struggled with his own alcohol use, and William James is one of his younger brothers, Bob was a lifelong raging alcoholic. He was in and out of asylums for the inebriate his entire adult life. And William James was his primary caretaker um, in his elder years. And so William James is this acute student or astute student of human nature, particularly human suffering. And so he gave a series of lectures in 1902 called the Gifford Lectures about the varieties of religious experience because he believed that Spiritual impulses burn at the center of human nature. And, and by that, he didn't mean any particular religion that he said religions really are doctrines and dogmas and institutions and practices, oftentimes founded on the profound spiritual experience of one person. But spiritual impulses burn at our center. And really what those spiritual impulses do is they reach towards something more expansive that reaches towards something either deeply within a person or outside in the world. And so, as James said, higher and friendly powers are expansive and that anything can play the role of a higher power. The only thing a higher power does is make you realize there's more going on in the world, in the cosmos, in the universe than just you and whatever you might be experiencing or suffering. So as a psychologist, he was talking about sometimes cosmic consciousness. And so he knew Carl Jung. Um, Jung was, um, you know, starting out when James was towards retirement. And he was just utterly captivated, James was, by the ways that people can fundamentally transform who they are and how they are in the world when they have this kind of connection to higher powers. So the connection to AA is this. So the founder of AA is Bill Wilson, who in 1934 checked himself back into another asylum for the inebriate to try to dry out one more time. And he was defiant. And this was a guy, Bill Wilson, who had a lot of confidence in everything that he did, except this one thing, he couldn't stay sober. So utterly defiant, going through withdrawal, probably having the DTs and probably hallucinating because he was taking Belladonna as well. He said he felt this sudden gust of, well, not wind, but spirit, and that his desire to drink was suddenly removed. And so he's profoundly grateful. And then not long after, he thinks, I'm going crazy. So a friend of his who had also stopped drinking had been reading William James's Varieties, and he gave him a copy of that. And from that, Bill Wilson took this concept of higher power, but instead of keeping the more expansive sense of it, he really, really reduced it to a very Christian 
familiar to him sense of God as we understood him and imported a lot of a, you know, providential framework that God has a will for us and human beings should step out of the way and that God can do things for us that we couldn't do by ourselves. And that if we were to turn our will over to the life of God and follow his plan, that all will be well. And so my hope in this book is to reinflate that notion of higher power, prize it away from that Christian centric notion and say to anyone, Anything can function as a higher power, as William James said. It could be ideals about truth and beauty. It could be a sense of human decency. It could be patriotism, moral principles. It could be a belief that you could be a better self. So a higher and friendly power is anything that causes a person to expand. And I think what we know about addiction is we tend to collapse down onto ourselves or our worlds are reduced to just our suffering and agony. And higher and friendly powers aims to sort of open a person back up and, and to help them be more expansive. That's uh, a, a brilliant um, summary as well as uh, elucidation of, of the concept of a higher power. And I think it's great that you're dispelling this concept of the, the Christian-centric God at, at the heart of AA because for some people, um, that is something that they're interested in. But for a lot of people, it makes AA less palatable. But could I ask you just to expand a bit more about the higher power concept and how that can help us make, say, significant spiritual or practical changes in our lives, uh, this, this uh, non-denominational higher power concept? That's wonderful because the other concept that... Bill Wilson took from William James was the notion of a conversion, that Bill Wilson understood himself to have had a conversion where God reached down and touched him and changed something in him, and then he was different. And William James says, a conversion is just a psychological process, and that it feels like there's an excursion from without because it's so it can feel so sudden, and it can feel it could feel violent, or it can feel like this kind of epiphany. But James says we can all author our own conversions. And when we are converted, he says, and this is a wonderful phrase from 1902, he says our habitual center of personal energy. So 1902, it sounds pretty new agey woo woo. Our habitual center of personal energy changes. So what had been the access around which much of our life turned or our beliefs about ourselves or our relationships, that that axis can change. But the crucial thing, James says, is that we're the author of it. So even those sudden tsunamis of feeling like God is removing something from you, William James would say, well, if your over beliefs, you know, your background beliefs, your explanatory beliefs are against a Christian background, which Bill Wilson's were Calvinist background, that you'll fit that experience into that framework and make sense of it. Oh, God must have you know, somehow entered into me, I'm filled with spirit, where James would say, you know, most likely not, that someone had been thinking about something, and there's the conscious mind, and then there's the unconscious mind, where the incursion comes from within, something in the unconscious might rocket its way through, it gets through the guard dog, the guard dog quality of the rational conscious mind, or something had been slowly kind of moving along, and then it kind of bubbles to the surface. He said, those are both conversions. So any person 
can have a conversion. Although James says some people are more susceptible to them, particularly people who suffer greatly. But that's not to say that, you know, in AA where they talk about rock bottom, you know, I, I don't like the concept of rock bottom because it makes it seem as if there's some objective point that everyone must reach. So they slam down into it and maybe they will then bounce back. James says, no, 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 no. Each individual has their own misery threshold. How much suffering can they tolerate? And some people can suffer a lot before they decide to make any changes. And other people, you know, do the equivalent of running for a spiritual bottle of ibuprofen or Motrin when they're in some distress and they will change things more quickly. So James says the speed of change doesn't matter. The origin of change, if you believe in a God and that hypothesis works for you, great, go with it, run with it. But for those of us who don't believe in a God, but we feel ourselves changing, we're the authors of that. And so we can author our own conversion. It's very empowering. Indeed it is. And I'd just like to second what you said in that I've seen people make changes without hitting quote unquote rock bottom. And I think mm -hmm. it's just the individual path of, of people. Yes. Not everyone follows the same pathway and there's no real pathway with alcohol use disorder anyway. Uh, there's no, you must hit point A, then B, then C, then go all the way to Z. Everyone does their own variation of this. But I think you raised a really interesting point for me. Um, and it's something that I, I, I did want to ask is that, is it possible to have a spiritual recovery without the religious component attached to that commonly? Oh, yes. And, and I think James was trying to be very careful to separate spiritual from religious. So they can overlap at times. Certain religions may really feed someone's spiritual nature. And religions could be a wellspring of spirituality for some people. But religions can, awful, can often stifle spirituality as well. And so James was not interested in the theological debates, you know, if there's a God, why is there evil? What's the nature of God? All of that, he said, that's the stuff of theology. I'm not interested in that. For him, he's just really interested in those impulses that just seem to be a part of human nature. And that, as someone who is both a psychologist, a philosopher, and he was a physician, he was worried about the way with the rise of modern science, the way that anything spiritual gets poo-pooed. Um, and he wanted to say that, you know, our spiritual dimensions are as much a part of us as our biological dimensions, as our rational dimensions, but they get short shrift in much of, um, well, scientific literature then, and I think just as much now. What are your thoughts on sometimes the changing needs of people on their path to recovery? Because what someone might need on day one of their of the decision to try and address alcohol use disorder can be quite different from day five to year five to year 15 to year 50. How do you uh, speak to people with alcohol use disorder, but also manage the constant changing needs and requirements of people as they navigate their pathway through recovery? I think that's an important question. One of the things that William James says is we're constantly changing. It's not that we have a self that gets set in stone and it never changes. He'd prefer to say that we're always selving. Our material selves, our, our, um, our, our spiritual selves, our social selves are always changing. So we're always changing to good or bad effect or to kind of neutral effect. So I know for me, 
I had been sober for 19 years and, you know, I thought I really had the world by the tail. And I came to realize that I was running on a very high functioning autopilot, which, you know, meant I was working really hard and working really well, but I felt like the lights were on and I wasn't home. And I realized that I had been ignoring the part of me that's in recovery. It was just kind of cordoned off from everything else I did. I didn't work professionally on addiction. I didn't talk about my addiction much. I mean, my friends knew. And, and I realized that I could be heading down a certain path by either taking my sobriety for granted and not kind of maintaining that kind of proactive, nimble engagement with myself. And so I think for me, the important thing is about flexibility. Am I willing to try new things to maintain my sobriety? So for me, it was trying to dip my toes back into AA. That still doesn't work so well for me, but there's smart recovery. There's women for sobriety. There's life ring. There, there, there are various things which are mutual support groups. Other people might need more medical intervention. They may need medication assisted therapies. They may need more psychological services. So, you know, my, my, belief is that for as many paths into addiction as there are, there need to be an equal or greater number out of addiction. And, you know, while we know there are some gold standards for addiction treatment, we know that they're not all easily and readily and equally available to people. And so how do we try to acknowledge that reality and still create ways for people, hopefully, to change their relationship with alcohol or drugs. And I think we need to put in the mix harm reduction as well. Alcoholics Anonymous is an abstinence-based program. And, you know, I think abstinence for many people might be the absolute way to go. But if we take alcohol use disorder or, you know, any of the other use disorders and say there's mild, moderate, and severe, I want to take it as something of a win. If someone could move from having a severe to a moderate or a moderate to a mild or to a mild and not having that problem. So nothing, nothing should be all or nothing. That will be the only categorical statement that I'll make. Um, but to be proactive and be attentive to your recovery, I think, is crucial. And I think that's the very thing that we stop paying attention to, ironically. Absolutely. And I think you've raised a, a, a good uh, point, and you also mentioned some of the other uh, recovery programs as well. And I do agree with you. In in general, in in addiction medicine, we do focus on harm reduction rather than abstinence based mm -hmm. models by and of themselves. But we encourage people to obviously engage in peer support programs where we find engaging with a community of of like minded individuals focused on recovery is really conducive to to better health and yes. and changing the trajectory of of your of your pathway. Could you comment a bit more on some of the other recovery programs, in particular um, Smart Recovery, which you mentioned, which has more of a, a CBT focus, which is quite different to, to the AA um, higher power paradigm. Um, what are your thoughts on, on Smart Recovery? I, I think Smart Recovery can be wonderful for people. I mean, particularly if they understand AA in that narrow spiritual religious sense where, you know, Many people would say, look, I, I, I don't believe in these things and I'm, I'm a rational individual and I can see all the reasons why I ought not to use or why I ought to change my behaviors. And, you know, I have to become somehow motivated to do it. So what are the methods for that? But I think what all of these mutual help groups have in common is the fact that stories play a crucial role. 
that listening to other people's stories and seeing yourself in them, so seeing yourself reflected in the story of another, which I think is crucial, say, in early recovery, to hear a story from someone who used like you did, or maybe even worse, or had more catastrophic losses, or didn't lose much, and then to begin to say, well, if that person can do it, I can do it. I mean, one of the ways that I describe people in recovery is we're oftentimes, we're hitchhikers. You know, we're catching rides on other people's sobriety until we can begin to make more progress. Yes, on our own, but oftentimes somehow in conjunction with others. And I fully acknowledge that some people completely sober up on their own. I mean, in many ways, I feel like that's what I did on the one hand, but on the other hand, I also know that I had a very, I, I made myself a very supportive friend network. So, you know, Smart Recovery, Life Ring, all of these groups, I think, understand it for like what you said, the benefits of being with people who have similar experiences, even if they come from very different walks of life, is very important to achieving self-knowledge and also to stoking a person's self-motivation. And with regards to, I guess, that last comment that you made about helping someone get that self-knowledge and that understanding, is there something as, as a psychologist and someone who has struggled with alcohol use disorder in, in, in the past that you would, is there any advice you would give anyone in, in speaking to someone with, with alcohol use disorder or starting that conversation? Because a lot of the time we see parents, friends, um, acquaintances of, of people who are struggling with alcohol use who do not have the language or the vocabulary or who are worried mm -hmm. that they will make a situation worse or offend a person. Is there anything that you would advise um, people in those situations as to the language or the tone in which to speak to people? Oh, thanks. And I'm a philosopher, so I just want to make sure I'm not you know, false advertising. I'm not a psychologist, but as a philosopher. And I think the category of self-knowledge as it's related to how others see us is crucial. So I think a lot of people struggling with addiction, two things happen. One is that we tend to think we know our true self because we have, you know, private access. We know what we're really like. We might put on a good face, but other people, you know, are going to judge us one way. All the while, they don't know that perhaps we're crumbling inside. And what I say to people is that kind of introspection oftentimes seems like you've got funhouse mirrors. So you've got the convex and the concave mirrors where you think you're perceiving accurately but you're looking at distorted images of yourself, but yet you take that to be total truth. And so that self-knowledge gets, it gets skewed in a bad way. And the other thing that happens, I think that self-trust is oftentimes a very early casualty of developing a substance use disorder. We stop trusting ourselves in certain kinds of ways, except about what we think is our self-knowledge. And so in talking to friends or family or talking to the person who's struggling themselves, it's really important that they come to trust themselves. They come to trust themselves and they trust the others perhaps who see them differently from their own distorted self-image. So I remember being in an AA meeting one time when a woman was talking about the fact that she had been sober for about a year and she, hers was a very rough recovery. And a woman who was newly in there, you know, just came up and told her how much that she admired her and to hear her story. And, you know, this woman had to suddenly take into account that someone thought she had some worth 
and was doing good things and saw her differently from how she saw herself. And so I know that, you know, our families and friends oftentimes have a very good view of us, but their views of us too are through their own filters, through their own lenses. So, I mean, I think in terms of talking to people struggling and talking to the people who are our family or friends, there's a similar kind of distortion that can happen there. And the question is, how do you take the time and how do you have the skill to try to remove those filters so that you can perhaps learn more about yourself and learn more about the others? And as you learn about that, how to take a kind of proactive responsibility that, you know, responsibility is forward looking as much as it is backwards looking. So, you know, when family members say to someone who's been struggling, you know, look, you really screwed up. You did all these things. I mean, you can get a bulldozer and put all the blame on them in the world, but that's not going to be productive if there isn't also a sense of, and here's what responsibility looks like moving forward, um, particularly for the person struggling. They need to know that um, one of the ways that we show we have moral worth is by assuming and meeting our responsibilities. And I think many people who struggle with addiction think that they, they can't do that anymore or that they have squandered or abdicated their right to do that. And I think in clinical practice as well, uh, telling people what to do rarely works. We usually use a motivational interviewing framework where we try and create that uh, dissonance between where the patient or person wants to go, where where they are now, and and kind of encouraging the person to see the steps or list down the steps of recovery as to where to get to where they want to go from from where they are because i think also that that sense of ownership and uh being in charge of your your recovery or or your path in life none of us like to be told what to do or yes. forced into something that we don't feel that we need in particular so giving that agency or that sense is 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 kind of critical in that pathway to to recovery I, I totally agree. And one thing you said just struck me, you know, in motivational interviewing, trying to get people to imagine what life could be like or what different steps they could take. I think another early casualty of developing a, a use disorder is that our imaginations get stuck running only in one direction. And that's the kind of worst case scenario, because maybe either we've been there or we've towed up to the line. But to imagine good things for ourselves sometimes seems impossible. Like we don't know how to do that or we don't we don't trust ourselves to do that or we don't trust that someone like me, and then we've got this whole laundry list of all of our defects. This is one of my concerns about AA, about that fearless and searching moral inventory that many people assume that means just list everything bad that you've ever done in your life. And for me as a moral philosopher, a full moral inventory includes, yes, maybe some of the, your, I don't like the word defect even, some of the things you struggle with but also some of your virtues. And so there's got to be kind of equal airtime on those. And, and I think that, you know, many people have a hard time imagining. They don't dare imagine. And I've, I've often wondered, you know, how does that hold some people back? Because we do need imagination. Because we do sometimes have to imagine the life that we want to have. I mean, we've, we've got to have some kind of something to which we we long to compass some positive ideal, something that's better than just, I know everything wrong that I've done, but you have to move to something positive. And that sometimes can be very hard, but that's where William James might come in and say, as you begin to imagine those positive things, those positive ideals, that could be your higher and friendly power. Absolutely. And I think a strengths-based approach in general is always 
a good place to start to let people know that you do have the capacity, you do have the capability. The present situation is not always going to be yes. your future going forward. Things can get better. And I think sometimes, um, especially with, with the patients that I've seen uh, in my clinical practice in, in addiction medicine, uh, by the time they come and come and see me, they've probably gone through quite a few different other pathways mm -hmm. per se, mm -hmm. and it can be quite isolating. And yes. you've been told by by peers, society, other people that that you are that you have no worth, that this is um, this is the way things are, and it is quite isolating. So I think one of the benefits of, of these peer support groups and programs is to to show people that you are not alone. Yes. that the future can be quite promising and you do have capacity and agency to make some of those changes. And sometimes that change will be incremental, yes. but it is possible and doable, but it's one of those stick with it things, rock up to the meetings, try and, inter try and implement some of these behavior change interventions over time. And there should be some progress over time. Would you say that's fair? I think that's fair. And, and I think one of the the tragedies. So I don't know what it's like there in Australia, but here in the U.S., almost three quarters of in and outpatient treatment programs involve the 12 step model of AA. And so many people go to treatment and insurance doesn't always cover it. So maybe they know their family has taken a second mortgage out of their house or has, you know, raided their retirement accounts. And so they go to a treatment plan. They go to a program where the the structure doesn't work for them, and so they fail. So now not only are they an alcoholic, but they're a bigger failure because they have perhaps put their family in great financial distress. And so then they try something else, and then they try something else. And that sense of being a not just a failure, but a moral failure. So to hear you use words like agency, those are the language of moral philosophy. So to hear the sense that someone feels like they have no worth because they fail every single time. And then to do some mathematical induction, why do I think that the N plus one time, so, you know, sometime out there that this time it would be effective. And I think William James is helpful here too. He says, you need to have faith. And by that, he does not believe in, he does not say, oh, it's about a belief in God. For him, faith is just a willingness to live on a possibility. It's a willingness to live on a maybe where the results aren't certified in advance. It's a working hypothesis of what if I did this? And that's all that faith is. But he says, faith can help to bring about fact, which I think is an interesting way to look at faith. Faith isn't something that you just have or don't have. It's something that you make and faith helps to make facts and your facts might help to shore up faith and to say which one comes first is chicken or egg. But you don't have to have faith in some God doing the big things for you. It's just faith. And he, he's got this wonderful example of you're out hiking and you're lost and you got to go to the left. You got to go to the right. Standing there and doing nothing isn't really a viable option. So you have faith. You take the steps down the right hand path and that may bring about the fact that you get back to civilization. You may be wrong, but then you have faith that the left path will take you there. Nothing mysterious, nothing big metaphysical about faith. It's just a good old fashioned working hypothesis. No different in kind from faith that you are going to be able to repair the leak in your kitchen sink. Very kind of basic and common sense. 
That's a, a, a really great point. And, and the importance of faith is, is so underrated, I, I, I think. And I think one of the great things about your book is that it decouples the religion um, from AA, but does show the, the utility and the benefit of, of programs like AA and how you can kind of utilize this program that seems quite rigid and dogmatic, but then utilize it to meet your own needs and help you on your path to recovery. As we've said, I guess, in this conversation thus far, there's no one-size-fits-all models, and there's a lot in the AA framework and paradigm which which is quite useful and helpful mm -hmm. to, to a lot of people. Yes. Sometimes the religion can be a bit confronting to people who are, who are not religious and may make them not look at AA. But the way you talk about this higher power and decouple spirituality from religion and how it's possible to get benefit from AA through that spiritual lens. I'm hopeful when people read your book and hopefully implement this, it, it will show some of the strategies of, of making a, a meaningful recovery, this living in faith without being coupled to religion. Oh, well, from your lips to the universe. I mean, the idea that you know, my hope would be that AA be a viable option perhaps for people who don't have any other choice or who have tried other things, but they have to be able to be in the rooms and not feel like they're being dishonest or feel like that, you know, this they're having religion shoved down their throat. I mean, AA meetings can really vary. You can have some very rigid meetings or you can have some that are like, you know, they've taken out the God language and they'll just talk about the universe or something like that. So that's the other part of it. AA is both a program, what you see in the 12 steps and what you have in the Alcoholics Anonymous, what you have in other conference approved literature, but it's also the people. So I think for me to decouple the program understood as the 12 steps and the people was important too, because even though I don't go to AA, most of my good friends are or have been in AA. And so there's something that they've gotten from AA that they now embody that whether or not they go or not, they're still, you know, I, I do like the term fellowship. You know, I do like the idea that here we are all together and our primary purpose is to help others get or stay sober. Full stop. That's all it should be about. Well, I think that's a great place to end this episode of Cracking Addiction. And I'd like to thank you, Peg, for coming on our show and talking about your book and also decoupling the concept of higher power um, and religion from spirituality and hopefully opening up AA as a viable option for, for more people with alcohol use disorder. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to, to, to mention at all? I just wanted to say thank you for having me on your podcast. What a wonderful podcast series you have. I listened to several episodes before I came on, and I'm honored to be part of what you're doing. And thank you for all the work you do. Thanks very much for those kind words. And for our listeners and viewers, we've talked a lot of, on this episode about AA, the philosophy of William James, the concept of a higher power, and trying to decouple uh, religion from spirituality. So again, it's been another action-packed episode of Cracking Addiction. Thanks for your attention and bye for now.